The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. An arbitrator says the Department of Health and Human Services broke the law when it implemented a federal service impasses panel decision about a collective bargaining agreement. The panel told HHS to continue negotiations with the National Treasury Employees Union on six articles of a new CBA. GovExec reports the agency implemented the full agreement anyway, including parts that both parties hadn't agreed to yet. The minority staff director of the House Armed Services Committee will be the new chief of staff to Defense Secretary Mark Esper. Jen Stewart has served in the Pentagon before. She was senior advisor to former Joint Chiefs Chairman General Joseph Dunford. Defense News reports Stewart will succeed the outgoing chief of staff, Eric Chuning, immediately after his departure at the end of the month with no acting chief of staff necessary. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security is extending a deadline to get public comments on cyber reporting documents. CISA says it didn't get any comments on updates to forms for reporting breaches and other cyber events. Fifth Domain reports the new deadline for comments is February 5th. The Federal Depository Library programs the latest government website to fall victim to hackers online. Hackers took over the homepage of the website, and that's making government agencies of all kinds double down on security as tensions rise with Iran. Tony Cole is Chief Technology Officer at Ativo Networks. Tony, thanks for coming on the program. What are you seeing as the possibilities? Iran's threatened all kinds of responses to what we've done regarding General Soleimani. Cyber's one of them. What should agencies be thinking about? How should they be preparing, raising the, the, the guard now? I think that, uh, well, one very timely topic, and thank you for having me here, Francis. I think that the challenge that we see today is the Iranians, you know, are going to have to try to stay below that thin red line, you know, uh, in cyber as a likely approach to do that. So with the advisories that came out yesterday from, uh, from uh, Cyber Infrastructure Security Agency, I think those are very timely and very important and really just emphasize what we already know, that organizations should be, you know, at a heightened level of security, looking at all of their assets. It's a big problem that we still see today is they still don't know what assets they have on their, in their environment, and that's critically important we get past that. Mm -hmm. uh, we just did a panel recently, and uh, that was one of the top uh, issues for, for CISOs in the federal government. So I think that's a big one is understand what your assets are, heighten awareness across the board, practice your incident response plans, and make sure that as part of that, that you have your structure built today so you know who to call in, when to call in, um, and what organization can assist you, you know, when, uh, when you see anomalous activity. And that's kind of where I wanted to go. The anomalous activity phrase is, is the key there, I think. Should we expect to see something different than we have seen before, uh, given the Iran threat? Or should we just expect to see maybe more or more intense activity than we see on an ongoing basis? I, I think it's yet to be determined. You know, it, it really is that, 
you know, that, that very gray area, you know, trying to ascertain exactly what they're going to do and what level they're going to ramp it up to. You know, the attack that took place on, on, the, uh, on the FDIC website, you know, that's really a nuisance attack. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's very little impact from that, and that's something they can, they can claim um, you know, retaliation for, and hopefully it will stay at that level, even if they took out a lot more federal websites and defaced them, you know, that's minimal impact versus compromising a, a, a very important database, leaking information, or worse yet, uh, modifying the integrity of, of those records in that database. That could be very problematic depending on what they are because it's possible that could go undetected and, and have significant impact. So hopefully it will stay at something that will be at a low level, like website defacements, where they could claim retaliation, where it doesn't escalate the issues, you know, between the U.S. and Iran. Uh, that, and that's the issue with the defaced website. That's, I don't mean to minimize the impact, but it's cosmetic. Exactly. And, and the things that you just named, especially the compromising, the stealing of the database, or the changing of the data in the database strikes me as the most difficult, the, the biggest problems. And that's why I wonder whether we expect to see something different than we've seen before, because those are already things that all kinds of bad actors are trying to do already, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and they could step outside the federal space and do a lot in that area, too. And I was uh, looking at Twitter this morning, uh, a lot of people talking about seeing, you know, a, a lot of uh, scanning of IP addresses, you know, uh, which is usually a, a preliminary piece in the reconnaissance phase for, you know, for an attack that's come forthcoming. Um, so it could be a, a lot of different things they could go after. You know, some of the areas have gone after in the past, the dams in the past, financial services, the utility sector. There's a lot they could do. You know, hopefully, you know, they're going to stay somewhat under that, uh, that level of, of response required. You, you used the word there, reconnaissance, that calls to mind the concept of cyber espionage. And now mm -hmm. we start to use terminology here regarding the threats and the potential responses or defenses that are right out of spycraft. Yeah. Um, is there a parallel between the way that one responds to a cyber threat like this and the way that one responds in the intelligence community to a potential breach, whether it's somebody old school breaking in and stealing files and taking pictures of them with little cameras and stuff like that? Uh, that's a great question and a great point. Today, you know, you see a, a big fusion of those two across the board. In fact, you see some of the alerts coming out of DHS that talk about, you know, uh, the intelligence capabilities from commercial companies as well, you know, in the in the cyber realm. So it's, it's fused a lot and you see a lot of attacks that combine the two. Some of the most successful red team attacks, so where a company has hired someone to come in and break in, in a government agency or a commercial company, so uses social engineering. So they're using spycraft to get access to a physical facility where then they will do something on the cyber side. Should, does that mean that CISOs should maybe think more or take cues from or even maybe take training from the intelligence community or companies that serve the intelligence community in that social engineering than maybe they already do? Uh, I think for large enterprises, you see a lot of that today. Not okay. enough in the federal space, but nevertheless, uh, there's a lot of discussions with, with CISOs, CIOs even, so at large enterprise that have conversations with threat intelligence companies that advise them in that area, as well as the government. So on some of the large critical infrastructure, there's tie-ins to the U.S. government where they're getting advice from them on things they should be doing on a continuous basis. Mm -hmm. Part of the issue that we see today that I think is really important, this should be a wake-up call uh, to Office of Management and Budget 
to help NIST get out some of those regulations that are sitting there that have some new technology in it that could be a tremendous help in this area that are hung up. 853, uh, you know, 800-171B, all of those are still hung up at OMB, and many of these are recommendations for new technology that could help the federal government and commercial companies as well, and they're still sitting in their waiting review. Tony Cole, great to have you. Great insight as always. Thank you very much, Francis. Appreciate being here. Up next, a big bump in contract spending all across government, straight ahead on Government Matters Top Trends and how industry can serve the government better. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Be right back. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. Welcome back. The government spends more on contracts now than ever. Fiscal year 2019 hit a record $594 billion in spending. Tracking the trends in the government contracting industry, Greg Baroni, chairman and CEO of Attain. Greg, it's great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming on. What are the trends that you're seeing now in contracting and doing business with the government? I think you, you see a series of trends going on right now. I mean, one is what's happening with the industry itself, those that serve the government, um, and, and everything from business models to the different uh, service offerings. Um, the second is the acquisition model. Is it, is it going to stay the same? Will it evolve over time? And I think you're going to see some changes, particularly since we're entering a new decade. Mm -hmm. it's, it's ripe for, for change. Um, and, and then I think uh, from there it's going to be the portfolio of services involving tech. I mean, it's, it's definitely going to be impacting it in a big way. Regarding services, is it your sense that the agencies individually and the government as a whole are getting better at understanding how to buy services? I guess that ties into the acquisition piece that you're talking about, too. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say for sure. I, and I think what you see, uh, Francis, is that the agencies know what they want to buy. Um, I think that they're, they're burdened in some sense by the types of rules and regulations that govern how they acquire those services. Uh, but even there, I think you're going to see changes. And, and you're beginning to see workarounds. GSA coming forward with uh, best-in-class vehicles, uh, schedule consolidation. Uh, you have uh, other transaction authorities, kind of workarounds uh, occurring. I think you're going to see a real move this decade away from the traditional uh, statement of work definition to more of an outcome or results-driven uh, purchasing pattern. That's a pretty welcome uh, development, I imagine, for yeah. people like you who have been, industry's been talking about that for years, that that's, that would help them serve agencies better. A absolutely. And, and even when we founded the firm, we wanted to make a difference. Uh, the firm was founded in uh, 2009, and we really we set three principles or three pillars around the founding, which was we wanted it to be a built-to-last firm. In other words, we didn't want to have a firm that was going to be around for a period of time and then flip it. We wanted it to have be a here from 100 years from now. I mean, you look at founders like uh, Ernst Volgano and, and Bob Beister when they founded SAIC, I should say SRA and SAIC respectively, they had a vision um, on how to serve this enterprise more effectively, and that's the way we did. We said we want it to be built to last, we want it to be next generation focused, and we want it to be values driven. Um, and it was really geared around helping our customers make a difference in the way they serve the public. You mentioned the schedules consolidation, the General Services Administration, the best in class vehicles. I hear chatter 
nobody really wants to come right out and say it, but I hear people talking about best-in-class vehicles. What makes this one a best-in-class? What makes this one? Why isn't this one? And I wonder what you think about the, the clarity or the transparency about what makes a vehicle best-in-class and what doesn't. Well, I think what makes it best-in-class is really do the clients, meaning the agencies, do they want to use it? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a function of ease of use, uh, quality of the vehicle, and then the pricing, obviously. Um, you know, for me, um, you know, I've watched our company grow from what you would call uh, a small business that, that leveraged the, the, those best-in-class vehicles as a small business, um, and then migrate into the, what, what's now being called the mid-tier. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for me, in order to make them best-in-class, it should be a level playing field for all participants, small, medium, and large, or middle tier. Mm -hmm. um, and I think right now, the concern I have in, in the service of the, or the use of these vehicles is whether they're in effect a level, a level playing field for the mid-tier. And, and I say that because you have the set-aside categories, you have the large businesses, and then you have this gulf this kind of no man's land, or what I call sometimes the valley of death. Mm. Uh, and the best-in-class vehicles need to make sure that they're treating each of those types of firms equally. We talk in this program a lot about what industry or what the government can do to make it easier for industry to do business with them. What would you like to see you and your peers in industry do? What could you do to serve the government better that maybe the industry as a whole is not doing right now? Hmm. That's a great question there, Francis. I mean, you turned it back on us. I, <laughs> I want to be able to ask them what they could do. But, you know, for us, it's, it's moving, moving away from the traditional uh, contracting model and helping encourage them to do that. In other words, sometimes it may be uh, stepping away from protests. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, uh, I think uh, a procurement happens and our, sometimes industry's knee-jerk response is, okay, we'll just protest it. And you see it ongoing right now with this largest acquisition involving Jedi. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to pass judgment one way or the other. I'm yes. just trying to share with you uh -huh. that it's the protest process. It's, it's also maybe we shouldn't participate in traditional contracting processes that we know um, are really going to be just driven by price alone. I mean, uh, you've heard a lot about, I'm sure, over the past few years around low price, technically acceptable. Mm -hmm maybe industry, especially those that are more focused on value creation, should step away from those, those acquisitions. Um, and so those are things that we can voluntarily do uh, to help out the process. Greg, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you here. It's all over. Up next, the new customer experience boost that the agency Americans dislike the most. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new look at a new IRS program. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. back, the Internal Revenue Service has a new partnership with industry that will help taxpayers that file their taxes online. The IRS wants to make filing taxes clearer for users. Danny Werfel's director at Boston Consulting Group, former acting commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. Great to see you, my friend. What's the big deal here? It strikes me this partnership that's been going on, I see, for 18 years yeah. between the private sector companies that provide software and the Internal Revenue Service 
this is kind of reaching a new level. Yeah, I mean, this started back in 1998 when the IRS Restructuring and Reform Act was passed, early days of the Internet, and there, even then there was excitement about this concept of e-file, and, and a goal was set that 80% of taxpayers would file their taxes online, even back in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. And so what they did at that time was they created a public-private uh, pr public partnership with these companies to advance e-filing solutions. And that's been largely successful. There's been a rise of an industry around that. But the, the, the rub of it is the intention is that they're for certain individuals, in, including in particular those that make less than $70,000 a year, that they would have a free filing option. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, about 70% of taxpayers are technically eligible to file for free, but only about 3% do. So the IRS is taking steps. How do we increase the number of taxpayers that are actually availing themselves of this opportunity to file for free online? The point of this, from my perspective, is I'm interested in the customer experience angle that the Internal Revenue Service is pursuing. Yeah. This is something that if they didn't care about the customer experience, they would just say, well, these companies that are in this partnership, they can do whatever they want, and, and that's not really our problem. That's not what they're doing. And then they continue, I mean, contrary to, I think, the image that the public has of the IRS, they're basically advocating on behalf of their own customer when they're involved in this partnership, if I'm reading this right. Yeah, the IRS really is organized around two major activities, services and enforcement. And so the services part is really around their mission of how do they help taxpayers meet their obligation to pay. And to, to, to meet their tax obligation. The enforcement side is audit and investigations, and that's obviously critically important. And that's what a lot of people think about mm -hmm. when they think about the IRS. But equal amount of energy and attention that the IRS has spent on how do we make the taxpayer journey more effective. And in today's day and age, it shouldn't surprise you that that e-platforms and modern solutions are the way in which you're going to advance better customer solutions. And what this agreement that was announced the other day uh, is basically saying is, is we're going to work with industry and make improvements to the e-file program. And the major improvement they're focusing on is improving the access that taxpayers have to the free file program. The reality is that benefit has been out there for a long time. It just hasn't been used as much as the IRS wants it to be used. And the cynic in me, as I looked yeah. at the press release from the IRS, made me, th I, th what jumped out at me is it looks like maybe the filing industry was not as forthcoming as they could have been if the IRS had to ask 18 years into this partnership for these companies to do what they asked them to do. Um, the FFI members, the, that's the, the companies that provide the free file services, will not exclude their free file landing page from an organic internet search. Now, if they were doing that, I mean, maybe they didn't yeah. really want the, the customer to find these so there, resources. Well, there's two pieces to this agreement, essentially, to simplify it. One is, is what you said, is like, let's make it easier for taxpayers who are on Google or Yahoo, whatever, and doing their search to immediately find the free solution versus it being a little bit more of a needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. So that's one. And two, it basically says that the IRS will now will no longer promise not to create a competitive software solution for eFile. That they didn't announce that they would actually create a a software. There's been no announcement on that. But previously there was a deal with industry that the IRS wouldn't compete with industry mm -hmm. with their own version of TurboTax or whatever the right. the, the service they, that that someone might be using. So those are the two pieces. 
I think the, the, the fact that the IRS is now saying we might compete with you will hopefully incentivize industry to help with this program goal mm -hmm. of getting more people filing for free that are eligible to do so. So what's the lesson from this public-private partnership that other agencies can learn about the ways that they interact with some cohort of private sector companies that serve the same customers that a, the federal agency does? I mean, it's, it's a really important lesson of focusing on the customer and understanding that, that there are a lot of players involved in effective delivery of government services. It's not just the government alone in many cases. In many cases, there are stakeholders involved, especially with the IRS. You have tax preparers like H&R Block. You have the AICPA who is, who's guiding accountants and what they're doing. You have the, the, uh, the software providers. All of those work in concert to ensure that, that the tax system is running effectively and the taxpayers are served effectively by it. And other government agencies should also recognize, like the IRS does, and they often do, that these stakeholders, if we're working together and collectively, now, obviously, some of these stakeholders have different interests, bottom line profits, and that's okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that there can't be collaboration and partnership. The whole concept of a public-private partnership is that you can still make money and the government can make its mission and we can work together and it can be a virtuous cycle. It doesn't have to be at odds with one another. Mm -hmm. They're not mutually exclusive. Exactly. We've got about 30 seconds left. Yeah. What will you watch as this moves forward to, to see whether this agreement was a success? Well, I think, fortunately, it's something that you can measure. Mm -hmm. Right now, we have a very low percentage of taxpayers that are eligible, availing themselves of free file. Let's see that number move up. I think an also interesting thing on the horizon right now is I mentioned services and enforcement. You know, there's recent reporting coming out uh, just today that that enforcement is down. Like the, the number of audits that the IRS is doing is is, is at an all-time low. So what I'm interested in is how does the IRS conserve that balance between services and enforcement as they make investments in serving the taxpayer better on their customer journey? How do they also make sure that they're not letting enforcement go as well? Danny Werfel, great to have you as always. Thank you, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, give our listeners some best practices for achieving a consistent security posture in the public cloud. Absolutely. So in public cloud, we have many different cloud providers. They have different security controls and mechanisms. To be able to control those in a single agency, we want to be able to gain visibility into your assets, your inventory, and your cloud environments, those different components, if you will. 
using Checkpoint Dome 9, this allows us to assess and gain visibility across all of your cloud environment and their controls. It also allows us to run some quick remediations against the NIST policies to make sure you're compliant and easily report on those so you know exactly where you're at to start with. Uh, Jeremy, he touched on this a little bit, but what about regulatory compliance challenges here? What do you see as potential hurdles? Well, it is a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's at the forefront of most of the conversations we have today. Not only do you need to ensure compliance of your internal security policies, but you also have to meet those regulatory compliance standards, like Sean mentioned with NEST or PII. With Checkpoint's Dome 9 solution, we have a full inventory of your environment and how everything is configured already, so it's simple for us to go ahead and provide NIST compliance rule sets, for example, right out of the box. Our experts will keep those rules up to date for you, and you can simply run your assessment on your cloud platforms, and it provides you the full audit-ready report. Okay, so Sean, let's talk remediation. How should these agencies respond if they, say, fail a compliance assessment? Yeah, there's really two ways to approach that. One, take the report in Dome 9 and use the step-by-step -step directions provided, so the just-in-time education, to correct those findings. Or two, leverage the technology to do auto-remediation. So as soon as you make misconfigurations or skip something, it'll take the actions to correct that. And lastly, the tamper protection capabilities really protect your administrators and those privileged accounts so that third-party hackers can't get access to those and masquerade as them in the public cloud. So again, use the reporting, the auto-remediation, and the tamper protection to protect yourselves. Great information. Sean, Jeremy, thanks for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.